Well, you can go ahead and be seated. And as you are, man, I just love Janice's testimony. Can we just give her a hand for sharing that with us again? I love that testimony because really it's central to everything that we're about here at Crossroads, which is we are all about Jesus. We are about lifting the name of Jesus. We're about celebrating what Jesus has done for us. We're about centering our lives on his teaching. And uh, Janice is just walking that road and declaring it publicly in the waters of baptism, identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection. It is just so cool to watch when that happens here at Crossroads. And if you are here today and you would say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. And whether that's like, you know, you've been a follower for two days or you've been a follower for, you know, 10 years, uh, I would encourage you, if you have not been baptized, to get baptized. That in Scripture, we see throughout the Scriptures to believe and be baptized, that we believe in Jesus and then we follow him in the act of baptism where we identify with his uh, death and his resurrection. And so if you're thinking about that, if you'd like to know more about that, actually next week on April 23rd, we're doing a class called Baptism Basics. And where we're going to spend an hour really answering the question, like, should I get baptized? Why would I get baptized? How does baptism work? Like, you know, what does the whole process look like to get me in the water? And so if you want to, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to get signed up for that and, uh, and come back next week to be a part of that. All right. Well, with that said, I do want to welcome you uh, to Crossroads Church, kind of the after Easter edition uh, of Crossroads. And if you're brand new with us, man, I'm so glad that you're here today. Uh, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today I get to start a brand new series that we are calling Sex Talk, where over the next three weeks we are going to talk openly about the goodness, the splendor, and the beauty of sex. And I know even as I say that for some of you are like, oh man, what did I just walk into? Like, am I, are we even allowed to talk about this in church, right? Like, admittedly, historically speaking, this is not a conversation that the church has entered into. There's not a lot of play that has come when it comes to the topic of sex. In fact, for most churches, it's a very much a taboo subject. It's a subject, a topic that, you know, is not deemed appropriate for Sunday mornings. In fact, this week I was at an event on Wednesday where an opportunity to speak and afterwards a group from another church came up and we were just talking and they said, so what's next at Crossroads? Like what's coming up at Crossroads? And I had said, well, this week I'm talking about sex. And they looked at me and they were like, you're talking about sex on Sunday? And I was like, yeah, not for one week, but for three. And they were like, we have never even heard a conversation or a sermon on sex before in church. And the reality is, is that's a way a lot of churches are. Historically, that's the way Christianity has been. That when it comes to this conversation on sex, there's a hindrance to it. If we are honest, there's a bit of an embarrassment to it when we talk about sex in church. And so consequently, we have abdicated this role, um, this conversation of sex completely and wholly to the world. Where if we're being honest, most of what we come to understand about sex, the way that we view sex, the way that, we are, the, the way that our kids are, are brought up understanding sex is largely because of the world and through like mainstream media. And my question is, is as the church has abdicated this conversation of sex where we have, we have not talked about it in services like this, as we have given ourselves over to the world's understanding, our culture's way of handling sex, here's my question. Has it made our lives better or just more complicated? I mean, just think about this. We are in the middle of the tender generation, you know, sex without strings attached. And just a question, 
After the thrill and the adventure runs out, and the shame and the guilt and the realization that you are just an object of sexual desire of someone else moves in, has it really made your life better? When it comes to the illusion of perfection in romance novels and it's depicted in the movies, is that helping you find a mate? Is that making your marriage better? When it comes to the issues of pornography and the viewing of pornography where you're, you know, trying to hide things, keeping opposite hours, you know, covering your tracks, hoping that that skeleton does not fall out of the closets, is that really making your life better? When it comes to the way that our culture handles sex, approaches sex, the way that we market it, the way that we use it to sell items, are we better off as a people or have we bought a lie and are paying the price? Look, the reality is, is that you don't need a pastor to stand up here and to tell you that the way that culture teaches us to understand, teaches us to view sex has not really made our lives better, but in fact has just made our lives more complicated. Sex is this amazing, powerful thing that when we engage it, when we don't engage it rightly, it's like dumping an oil tanker on a campfire and watching the whole forest burn down. And maybe today you're here and you are experiencing the wounds of being, uh, being burned because of the way that you have approached sex, the way that culture has told you that you should approach sex. And obviously, as we approach this today, we look at this and we go, there has to be a different way. There has to be a, a better way of understanding this. There has to be a better lens in which we can view sex other than the way that culture is teaching us. And so this series is really about seeing sex the way that God intended it to be. Now, admittedly, when it comes to sex, God gets a bit of a bad rap, doesn't he? That oftentimes when we look at the Bible and what the Bible or what God has to say about sex, we look at God as like the cosmic killjoy, don't we? And the reason for that is because if you were to go home today, be careful, but if you were to go home today and you were to do a Google search of like sex in the Bible and see all the times that sex is mentioned in the Bible, that when it comes up, oftentimes it comes up with sexual, uh, uh, sexual immoral, that sexually immoral is the context in which it shows up. And so we look at it and we say, you know what, like, like the Bible, after we read all these passages, doesn't really have a lot to say about sex. And when it does, it, it addresses our sexuality only in the negative or, you know, in a prohibited or in prudish ways. And yet here's the gigantic secret of Scripture, of the Bible, that sex is good because the God who created sex is good. And the reason that sex is such a big deal for us is because of the God who created it. And the more that we enjoy sex, in the boundaries in which God has placed them in, the more that we enjoy sex, the way of reflection of our creator, the better sex for all involved. And so over the next three weeks, we're gonna put aside our hesitancy and our embarrassment when it comes to this topic. And we're gonna talk for the next three weeks about these issues. Today, we're gonna to talk about the goodness of sex and the way that God created it for us. Next week, we're gonna talk about the selflessness of sex. The pastor Chris is gonna be here and he's, he's gonna speak about the unity that we discover in the sexual relationship. And then James is gonna wrap this series up 
and talk about when sex meets our depravity. And so that's where we're going over the next three weeks together as a church. And so if you have your Bible or a Bible app, I would encourage you to open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, all right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. And the letter of Thessalonians is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And Paul is encouraging the church in Thessalonica that no matter what they face in this world, joys or more specifically the struggles, the hardships of this life, to keep our eyes on King Jesus. And so for the first three chapters of Thessalonians, of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is describing and he's painting a picture of this glorious Jesus as our king. We get into chapter 4 and Paul begins to make this switch to the practical. He says, in light of everything that I've spoken about in the first three chapters, let me give you some practical direction on how to live out your life. And so he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, he writes this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul begins by looking at believers and he says, come on believers, that, my, that as, I, as I write this to you, as I write this for you, I want you to live in a way that is pleasing to God. I want you to live your life in a way that you put a smile on God's face, that I want you to live your way, that the way that you live, the way that you walk in this world, the actions and attitudes that you have, make them be a delight to God. Put a smile on God's face. In other words, what he's saying is, Crossroads, this is for you. This is for you. That if you are with us and you are not a believer in Jesus, then this really isn't for you. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything today. Hopefully you walk away considering the goodness of what is said here. But if you are here today and you do profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you go, man, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm bent on God, I'm bent on following God, then this is for you, that there is an expectation that you live radically different from the culture, particularly and especially when it comes to your sexual lives. It's worth noting here, that when it comes to this specific passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it absolutely transformed culture. That shortly after these verses were written by Paul, a saying popped up in Roman culture and in Roman literature that went like this, that we share our table with all, but not our bed with all. Now, to understand this saying and really kind of the revolutionary nature of this passage, you have to understand the Roman pagan culture of the time. See, when it came to Romans, the Romans did not share their money with anybody. They saw their money as sacred, and so they guarded it. But when it came to their bodies and, their, and sex and the way that they handled their sexuality, they gave freely to everyone. I mean, it was, just, it was just out there for everyone and anyone that they gave their bodies to everyone. And then suddenly the Christians come along, and they live the exact opposite way. And the Christians came into the scene, and all of a sudden, they started to look at their money as something that they could freely give to all, that they were incredibly loose with their money, that they were generous with their money all over culture. But when it came to their bodies, when it came to sex, when it came to their sexuality, that was sacred. That was to be guarded. And so over time, this, this saying developed among the Christians that we share our table with all. That is, that we give our money away generously. We give away our possessions generously. But when it comes to our bed, when it comes to our sexuality, we do not share it with all. Now, 
as we look at this, as we look at this, we come to realize that while at first, as this started taking place in culture, that the Romans, the pagans, that they laughed and they mocked the Christians for this, but over time, something striking began to happen because in the end, the Christian way swept through the entire Roman Empire, to which we have to ask why. Like, like what happens? I think the answer is actually in this passage. See, when it comes to the modern world, we think that we are so enlightened, that we are liberated, but the reality is that we have the same attitude and assumptions that the Romans lived with concerning sex and money. And so Paul looks out at us, and he says to us, I want you to live your lives in such a way that you bring delight to God, that you put a smile on God's face, that I want you to walk in your life in such a way that you are pleasing to God, to which we go, well, well, what does that look like, Paul? And he answers it in verse three for us when he says this, for this is the will of God, that you're walking pleasing, that you're delighting God. This is, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, that word sanctification is a really big word in our Bible. It's a word that's used often in our Bible. And what it simply means is that God wants you to be holy, that God wants you to be set apart, that, that, there is, that, that he wants you to be great, that he wants to be a partaker of his nature, that he wants you to reflect his character. And let's just be clear about this. When it comes to sanctification, there is no genuine happiness apart from sanctification. That sanctification is your means to significance, to purpose, to meaning. It is the only path to those things, and that includes the experience of sex. And so how do we go about experiencing this? Well, Paul says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that this is how you become holy, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lust, like like the Gentiles who do not even know God. So let's be careful not to read through this passage too quickly because Paul is doing something very interesting here, that he's using this phrase, passion of lust, and as he uses this phrase, what he is not describing is sexual desire. He's not describing sexual desire. He does not define sexual lust as sexual desire. It's not the same thing. He he is not saying that sexual desire or even strong sexual desire is wrong. He isn't saying that. He wouldn't say that the Bible doesn't teach that. What he is saying is that when sex is improperly used, it will absolutely undermine your holiness. But when sex is properly used in the context in which God has placed it, it is actually a means to your holiness. I mean, (laughs) this is not the way that we think about things. But just ponder that for a moment. The way that you that you come to, the way that you that you see, the way that you view, the way that you participate in sex is a means to your sanctification, to your holiness. See, when it comes to the Bible's attitude towards sex, it is one of such enthusiastic rejoicing at the glory of sexual pleasure that it even makes Boulderites blush. All right? Let me prove it to you. In Genesis chapter 1, first page of the Bible, we have God putting together all of creation. And in verse 26, we have this. Then God created, said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. 
And God said to them, now go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That we have God in, in creation here, in the creation account, creating humanity. In doing so, he creates them male and female. And in the creation, in being made male and female, he commands them to have sex. To go, to fill the entire earth. First chapter, their sex, commanded by God. And then God goes on and he gives the best blessing in all of the Bible. And it was very good. We turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, and what do we see? We see Adam, uh, we see God bringing Eve to Adam. And as Adam lays eyes on Eve for the first time, he breaks out in this euphoric love song, this poem. This is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, for she shall be called woman. Now, we don't think this way, but just imagine the scene here. You have naked Adam singing a euphoric love song to naked Eve in the presence of God. And there's no shame. Just complete joy, complete satisfaction. We get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and we read these words. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and she bore Cain. That this, this idea here, that, that what we have here is Adam knew his wife. That this is a very candid assertion of the sexual act of marriage. That here sex is described as knowledge. Now, this is very important for us to understand. This isn't just some kind of biblical form of discretion. This isn't a euphemism. This is, not, this is not an attempt to avoid talking about the sexual reality of marriage. Instead, it is a word that is one of the most appropriate words for us to understand in the definition of marriage and the reflection of its purpose, that it is knowledge. The husband has knowledge, the wife has knowledge, but they do not have sexual knowledge apart from each other. You read further into the Old Testament and you come across the Song of Solomon, which is the most unique of all religious writings in the world. Like right smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, you have this euphoric, ongoing, long love song from a man to his wife. And his attitude towards sex, well, let me just read you a couple of passages. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. This is, this, is a, this is a man speaking of his wife as his wife comes to him. As she is coming to him, he writes this. He says this. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples that here we have this very vivid description of a husband taking hold of his wife's breast, no shame, no problem. On the other side of this, in chapter five, we have a wife looking at her husband as he's coming to her. And as he, and, and as he comes to her, she says of him in chapter five, she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His lips are lilies dripping with mirth. His body is like a polished ivory tusk bedecked with sapphires. This is my beloved and this is my friend. We read this and you might be tempted to go, oh, that's not all that vivid. Oh, yes, it is. When she speaks the line polished like ivory, you know, bedecked with sapphires. Everybody in Jewish culture knew that this was a description in poetry that meant her husband was ready. He is aroused. There is no shame here. There is no shame here. Just joy in their sexuality. See, in the context of a healthy marriage, 
Sex can bring a man and a woman to the heights of ecstasy that they never dreamed even possible because the inherent trust that is in the exclusivity of their covenant together. In fact, the French, they have a word for this feeling that's translated in English, little death. To, to try to capture the experience of ecstasy, ecstasy as, as, as you have this experience within sex where it feels like your body, where your, where your soul is leaving your body. That God is glorified greatly when we receive his gift with thanksgiving and enjoy it the way that he meant for it to be enjoyed. Now, I say all this not for shock value. This is your Bible. This is your Bible. And in your Bible, on one hand, it says if you follow the passions, uh, follow your passions wherever they point you, where you just run like free sex everywhere, then your view of sex is actually too low. You're not respecting the power of which God created sex. And on the other hand, if you're prudish, if you say that sex is defiling, then you're not respecting the goodness with which God has created sex, and again, your view is too low. And so throughout history, these have been the two predominant views of sex. Follow your desires unabated, free love, all you can get, tender is your playground, sex is the way to happiness, or sex is bad, sex is dirty, sex is defilements, be prudish, squelch your passions. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes the church has chosen the second of those two options, not out of obedience to the word, but rather from a misunderstanding of what God actually has to say about sex. And so throughout history, and certainly in our culture, both of these are vying for supreme position. They blog about each other, they fight with each other, they argue with each other, but both come from a view of sex that is too low. One does not respect the power, the other does not respect the goodness, and all of a sudden Paul comes on the scene and he says, listen, there's a third option. There's a gospel-centric option that understands both the power and the goodness in which God has created sex with and, and the reason that he uh, created sex, what he created sex for. And in this understanding, it can be means of our sanctification. It can be means of our holiness if we learn, if we learn what it looks like to channel it. But in order for that to happen, it has to happen within context, he says. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and in honor. Now, if you're using the ESV, you probably have a little footnote in your Bible, if you're looking at your Bible, or if you're reading a different translation, it might read differently, and it might say, or uh, how to take a wife, that each one of you know how to take a wife. Now, the reason that there's a footnote there, the reason that your uh, translation might read differently than the ESV is because the Greek here is a little bit tricky, but what Paul is doing is that he's leaning actually on this, on this contrast that we see throughout the New Testament for sexual desire. That when it comes to sexual desire, there are basically two ways to live it out. Either you walk the path of sexual immoral, which means, you know, basically the general misuse of sex, or since he's primarily talking to men here, that you learn how to take a wife. In other words, when it comes to sex, the Bible is very simple. And I know that this is controversial in our time and maybe even amongst some of you in this day and age, but the Bible is simple. That you can have sex in marriage between a husband and a wife, or you are misusing sex. That biblically speaking, it's one of those two options. Now, 
before you dismiss me and say, well, let me tell you what me and my friends believe. Let me just speed up the process. I know what you and your friends believe. You believe that this is totally impractical. And I want to affirm with you, I want to agree with you that this is totally impractical. Because throughout the history of the world, sex outside of the confines of marriage has always, always, always benefit to the man and to the detriment of the woman. Let me explain. That back in the Roman world, a man was the head of the family. And a man's honor was his family line, his family lineage. It was everything to the man. It was everything in culture. And so when it came to women that they could not have sex with a man who was not their husband, they could not have, uh, they could not have adultery, they could not participate in adultery, they could not sleep with more than one man. Why? Because in doing so, if she was to become pregnant, there would be a question about who the baby daddy was. But men in this culture, they could take multiple wives, and it didn't matter. That they could basically do whatever they wanted. In fact, if you had like a medium amount of wealth or even a high amount of wealth, you most likely had slaves. And when it came to slaves in the Roman culture, that you could do whatever you wanted to and with and the slaves. You could do whatever you wanted for the slaves, and that included sexually. It included sexually. And so what you had beginning in this, in this culture is when it came to women, if she did anything that confused the family line, then the laws were incredibly harsh towards her. As a man, you could do whatever you wanted, and the law basically didn't care. But if you were a woman and you stepped out in this way, the law was incredibly harsh. And so Paul comes along and says, look, we're going to do things differently. That in culture, there's, there's this double standard that favors men doing whatever they, they wanted, and we're going to do it, we're going to do it differently. Now, before you go, Matt, come on, that was 2,000 years ago. We progressed. Yeah, we have progressed. But have we progressed for the better? I mean, in culture, the message that we get about women every day is take me, use me, do whatever you want to me, and trade me in. And if you don't believe me, just look at modern music and how often women are referred to as sexual objects totally robbed of the humanity in which God has created them with. The porn industry is now a $100 billion industry. The main partakers of pornography are boys 12 to 17 years old and girls 12 to 17 years old. We have a whole society of boys looking at what it is to have desire and a whole segment of girls living out what it looks like to be desirable. That this view, this message of our culture when it comes to sexuality only exasperates the greatest defilement of humanity, the sex trade industry. So you're right. This was 2,000 years ago, and we've progressed to the point where today women are viewed, presented, talked about, sung about like they're a commodity. What a great step we've made as society. I mean, come on, don't you see uninhibited sex, extramarital sex, sex according to our culture always benefits the man. Even in our culture, when women are invited into it, it is always, always, always to the benefit of the man. So you're totally right. It is totally impractical. So Paul comes along some 2,000 years ago, and he says, listen, brothers, we're going to do this differently. We're going to approach our sexuality differently. Men, pay attention. You're going to sleep with one woman. 
and she's going to be your wife. She's going to be the companion. She's going to be the object of your sexual desire. She's going to be the mother of your children. She's going, she's going to be your best friends. That we're going to have this gospel-centric approach to sex that rightly holds the power and the goodness as it was created with. And when you don't, Paul says, when you don't, he says, you are just like the Gentiles who don't even know God. You're just like the Gentiles who don't even know God. And it's right there in verse 5 where we come to realize why this is an issue of our holiness. That Paul says when we treat our sexuality like the culture teaches, then we are just like the Gentiles who do not know, circle, underline, highlight, God. See, when it comes to the Bible... The same word to know that we read about in Genesis chapter 4, 1 to describe the depth and the intimacy that a husband shares with his wife and the wife shares with her husband is the same Hebrew word that is used throughout the Psalms and the Old Testaments for us to know God. That in God's infinite wisdom, he chose to use very sexual language to demonstrate the covenant relationship to him. Now, please hear me on this. That does not mean that somehow we have sexual relations with God or he with man. That's, that's a pagan thought. That's not Christian. But what I do mean is that the intimacy and the ecstasy of sexual relations points to what knowing God is meant to be. I mean, listen to these words out of Hosea chapter 2. The prophet is writing about God. He's, he's communicating the words of God to the people of Israel. Listen to how he addresses Israel. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of, of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will, I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. Now seriously, it is virtually impossible for you and me to read this and to honestly say that knowing God, as God intends humanity to know him, is simply a means of like mental awareness or understanding, or, you know, I have an acquaintance with God. Not in a million years is that what knowing God means here. I mean, just listen to, again to the words. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her, that she shall call me my husband, that I will betroth her in, in marriage, that this is the knowing of a lover, not a scholar. Now, a scholar can be a lover, but a scholar doesn't know God until he is a lover of God. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is using this Old Testament understanding of knowing here, and he says that when our view of sex is too low, when we don't respect the power of sex, when we don't respect the goodness of sex, when we misuse sex for our own benefit, we are just like the Gentiles who do not know Intimately, relationally, lovingly, you do not know God. 
that you might have a mental awareness of God, you might have an acquaintance with God, but you are not a lover of God. And so Paul says, consequently, whatever you're looking for in sex, whether that be satisfaction or acceptance or belonging or worth, that you will never find it because God can only provide it. And that's why you keep going back time and time again. That's why you keep going down that road, because until God is the lover of your soul, you will not be the fit to be the lover of anyone else. Paul says, I want you to live lives, believers, that are pleasing to God, that bring a smile to God's face. Listen up. This is your sanctification. This is your holiness. Abstain from sexual misuse and instead see sex for what God created it to be in power and in goodness. And when you use it in the confines of the context in which he has created it, you will experience what it means to know God. This is why it is a means of our holiness. This is why Paul spoke so, so huge about this issue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's why this transformed an entire culture. Because until you become the lover of God, you're not going to be fit to be the lover of anyone else. And so today, we're going to end this time a little bit differently. We know that when we talk about issues of sexuality, that it can stir up all kinds of emotions in our minds and in our hearts. And so the way that we're going to close this service is I'm going to, or this time is I'm going to pray for us. And then the band's going to come out and they're going to sing a song from Genesis chapter 2. It's a song meant to be reflective. It's a song for you to think through. And after that time of them singing, we're going to partake in communion together. Now, if at any point during this, if you go, Matt, I'm not sure I know what it looks like to be a lover of God. If you'd like to have that conversation, you can just use our text line, 720-513-1933, and you can text the name Jesus, and we would love to have that conversation with you. Will you bow your heads as I pray? Father, we, we look at passages like this, and Lord, when it comes to our sexuality, it reaches into the depth of who we are. And Lord, for so many of us, we have lived the way culture has taught us when it comes to our sexuality. That we as a church have almost completely abandoned your teachings on the issue. And Lord, if we just stop and pause, we realize that we're not better because of it. Life is actually just more complicated. And so today, Lord, I pray that as we grapple with these words, that you would meet us exactly where you are. That as we grapple with these things that Paul writes, that we would come to understand that even in our sexuality, that because of our sexuality, that we can be holy, that we can be set apart, that we can be holy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
saw you first He put me deep, deep under So that he could work And like the dawn You broke the dark And my whole I was sleeping in the garden when I saw you. At last, at last, bone my bones, flesh my flesh. together today as a family celebrating communion because it's in Jesus's body being broken his blood being spilt that we can come to know God intimately relationally as the lover of our soul that it's through the cross the cross that our sins were forgiven when Jesus body was broken and so today we eat as a family remembering by blood through the scriptures we're told that the blood is life 
And as Jesus spilt his blood, our sins are covered and the opportunity at life is ours. And so we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made and we celebrate today. As we can continue in our worship, I'm gonna invite you to stand. As we sing to our Lord and Savior Jesus, at any moment, if you need prayer online, you can just click the button in-house. You can make your way over to the banner. But let's sing of the glory of God together today.